we actually, some of the songs we just sang talked a little bit about this idea of the unchanging nature of God, how we change. I was thinking as I was um, prepping right before Sunday school and coming up here and getting ready, last minute stuff, thinking that there's a scripture that says, even when I'm or we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And it's a, it's a, a blessing to know that we serve a God who doesn't change, who's faithful, even when we aren't, who, who, who is there for us when we fall down to pick us back up and all those things. It's a wonderful thing. Um, back in uh, September 12th of last year, um, I shared a message that was called, that was entitled, The Truth is Under Attack. And um, a couple of statistics I want to, or a couple of things that were um, shared in that that I had found in researching for that was, uh, first off, three in five Americans today believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Then if you go four out of five, 25 to 40-year-olds in America believe that there's no absolute truth, so it's, it jumps with the, with the younger age group. Now this one's a little more alarming. One in two Christians, one in two people who call themselves Christians believe that there's no absolute moral truth out there. I think this is quite serious considering that the Bible is the only absolute truth that mankind has, and actually those kinds of statistics are actually a moratorium on where America stands overall as a culture regarding the Bible. 80% of Christians believe that any religion will get a person into heaven. And 56% of people who identify as Christians believe that you can get to heaven even if you don't believe anything at all. And in that message I also talked a little bit about biblical worldview and a quick definition of biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is defined as believing that absolute moral truth exists and that that truth is defined by the Bible and having firm belief in these six things. The first one, Jesus Christ lived a sinful life. That God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe and he still rules today. Third thing, salvation is a gift from God and can't be earned. Fourth thing, Satan is real. Fifth thing, a Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people. And the sixth thing, the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. And now some statistics. Only 4% of adults in America have a biblical worldview in the way I just explained that. And they base their decisions on that worldview. Only 4% of Christians, or 4% of adults. Now the sad thing, only 9% of born-again Christians have such a perspective on life. Let that sink in. We're not just talking now people who call themselves Christians, but it goes a step further. People that would say that they're born again and come to Christ, only 9% of those have perspectives on life. And then a breakdown even further, of those 9%, only 7% of Protestants, only 2% who attend mainline Protestant churches, 13% who attend non-denominational Protestant churches, 10% of Pentecostals, 8% of Baptists, and less than one-half of 1% 1 of Catholics. Those are statistics of people in churches that have a biblical worldview. That should be a rather sobering thing. Now, what I want us to guard against is we can look at 
that, and then we can immediately get on our soapbox and get angry and frustrated and upset and talk about them and they and how dare they do those things. And that's not what this is about. It's, a, it's, it's what do we believe? What do you believe? What do you base your decisions on? What do you base your life on? Um, it is a little bit, actually it's quite alarming, to be honest with you, that when there's no absolute truth, if that's what a person says, there's no absolute truth, and there's no absolute moral truth, then who gets to decide what's right and wrong? If there's not this baseline thing out there about this is an absolute truth that doesn't change, absolute moral truth that doesn't change, it gives us direction, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? In our culture today, we're using, and have been for quite some time, using human, human wisdom and reasoning to decide what's right and wrong. We've moved away from the moorings of biblical truth to our own human reasoning and our own intellect and what we think to determine right and wrong. Actually, in the United States, we've actually moved beyond that to a place where human reasoning and human wisdom actually trumps what God says in his word as a culture. And actually, unfortunately, a lot of churches, that's become the point. What I think and what I feel that we discuss in our human reasoning actually takes a higher precedence than what God's written in his word. Like I said, it might shock you, but that's happening all over the country, unfortunately, right now as we speak in a lot of churches. Not all churches are that way. There's a lot of them that preach the gospel and have a biblical worldview and stand on the truths of Scripture. There's lots of them out there, but there's also lots of them out there that don't. There are men and women standing in pulpits today all over the United States who are considered to be experts that are teaching that biblical truth is subjective to our experiences and our personal understanding. In other words, we look at a scripture and then we judge it according to our, our, our own experience and our own wisdom to determine what it means, rather than looking at that and letting that dictate what, I, what my experience is and weighing my experience accordingly. There's a name for that. Such reasoning and such teaching is called progressive theology. It's a big word, progressive theology. Now, the word progressive is a term that's thrown around a lot in the day that we live in, in our modern culture. Words like conservative and liberal, I just use those things and immediately tons of stuff pops into your head. But the same thing when I use the word progressive because it's all over the news. So what does progressive actually mean? Okay. I'm going to warn you, it's quite murky. I went to the dictionary. The dictionary gave a couple definitions. Dictionary definition of, of progressive. Favoring, favoring or advocating progress, change, or improvement, or reform as opposed to wishing to maintain things as they are. A second definition. Making progress towards better conditions employing or advocating more enlightened or liberal ideas, new or experiential methods, etc. Now, I want to say this. On the surface, that sounds like good stuff. Being willing to change, to make things better, and so on and so forth. Okay? But now I want to give you another... This, I'm going to wrote this up. There's a quote so you can see this. Uh, politicians, activists, and others disagree about what the word progressive means. Again, politicians, activists, and many others in our culture do not agree, would not find a consensus on what that word actually means. Historians concede that there is no precise definition for its use in American culture. 
This word that's thrown all over and used all over, progressive, and is actually, like I went back here, you've got progressives, but then you have progressive theology and progressive Christianity. The, the sad thing about that is historians would say there isn't a precise definition of what that actually means in our culture. I actually set forth today in my studies this week um, to read through some things about progressivism and progressive theology and thought I would come up with an excellent definition for you that was crystal clear. And in the end, it was a futile attempt to come up with a concrete definition and understanding what progressive actually means in our culture. It was actually fruitless. What I thought I would find, and I thought would be declared clearly, I came to that thing right there that says even historians can see that there's not consistency and they can't nail it down. It's vague. It's not clear. And I find that extremely troubling considering that progressive, progressivism in America has crept into progressive Christianity and has formed progressive theology and we have this idea that we can't even nail down what that word means. Now I want to ask another question. I apologize for some of you this is right up your alley and you think along these lines. Others of you might get a blank stare for the next few minutes, which hopefully messengers are something for everybody uh, in the right way, in the right meaning. Another question I have right now then that this brings is, does truth change? Now, you can say, we can say biblical truth, but I guess it's a general, does truth change? And I got a couple things that just as I pondered that this week in my study, I'm thinking, does truth change? First off, I want, you can test these words. Don't take it just because I'm saying it to you, but think about this. By nature, if something is really true, then it doesn't change. We say it again. By the very nature of the word true, if something is true, then it doesn't change. If it does change, then it wasn't true in the first place. You have to let those things sink in because... One thing that we don't often do real well is use, our, and this is a spot where we even use some just basic, simple logic and reasoning to, to put these things to the test. Progressives believe this, that as we know more and as we experience more, the truths that we used to believe in need reinterpretation. And I think that that's absurd in the fact that if it was really true before, it doesn't need reinterpretation. It should be shedding light on where we are now, rather than going in the direction. Progressives also believe this, that biblical truth needs to yield to our human reasoning and our human understanding, rather than our need to yield to its unchanging nature. Let me say that again. Progressives would believe that biblical truth needs to yield to human reasoning and human understanding, rather than the need for humans to yield to the unchanging nature of biblical truth. Now, it can sound like that that statement contains some truth, but what it actually has led to and will always lead to in the end because of the depravity of humanity and unwillingness to come and yield to things, it all leads to and it has led to a rejection of absolute truth that has always been since the beginning time and always will be regardless of what we say about it. It's not going to change, but it has led to the rejection of that concept. I propose to you this morning that my learning and your learning, I don't care how far you've gone in education, whether it's not even a high school education or all the way up to a doctorate as far as you can go in your field. 
I propose that all of our learning does not change absolute truth and does not prove that it does or does not exist. I could continue to try to explain to you progressivism, progressive theology, progressive Christianity, but that's a grave mistake. What we need to do right now is take a look at what the Word of God has to say and see some things there. So I want to take you this morning to a few scriptures. Make the statement right off. My premise this morning is God doesn't change. And I don't want you to take in my word for it. I want you to see it clearly and concisely in what God wrote. Okay? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says very clearly, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi, a prophet, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God lays this on his heart and he records it. And we, it's been kept for thousands of years. And we have that truth. I, the Lord, do not change. And then, that's an Old Testament. Now we go to James, New Testament. James writes this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So this idea, what does it mean that God doesn't change? And I'm letting you into I ask these questions because you know what? That's the way as I, as, I, as I read Scripture, as I study and prepare for these things, and even in my own devotional life, what does that mean? What does it mean that God doesn't change? You say, well, it's rather obvious what it means. But sometimes when you go back and look at the words that are used that were originally in the Greek and the way it's interpreted, a broader reading can either be a fuller understanding or realizing that they used the best word they could, but it's not clear. All right? So what does it mean that God doesn't change? Well, I'll give you a couple things that I found as I was studying in the Greek, with the Greek and the Hebrew, because it's said in both places, two different languages, two different times in the history of God's people. This is one thing that, that it means. God doesn't change. God's not fickle. They actually use that. The scholars actually use the word. God is not fickle. I didn't make that one up. I'm pulling it directly from, from Greek and Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries. When they use it. God's not fickle, which means he's not, his, his changeability, especially as regards to his loyalties and his affections. God's loyalties and affections don't change. He is not changeable. It's not, it also means the action of changing. It means that God is not in the action of changing. You know, that's not earth-shattering and should lead us to believe, that's about all I found as far as what it meant, it should lead us to believe that when God says he doesn't change, you know what it means? It means exactly what it says. Now how about this though? Um, when you read, um, let's take a look then in, in James 1.17. What I did on that one is I went through all the, like, like 50 I read 50 different renditions or different English translations of James 1.17. The one I gave you earlier right there is the New, New International Version. But then sometimes when, people, when scholars or people are trying to translate from the Greek into the, into the English language, it's not always a concise thing where everybody has the same phraseology of words because they're trying to find the best way to express that truth in the English language. But let's, let's look at some of the other things that may have said. And you test these things. Okay, The first one here. One of the translations says, In whom there is no variation, no rising or setting, or shadow cast by his turning, for he is perfect and never changes. Another version. He is always the same, 
and never makes dark shadows by changing. Another one. But God never changes like the shadows from those lights. And what lights was it? It was referring to the heavenly lights. Like the last night was one of those rare nights again. The moon was out. It was clear. And the snow was out there. And believe it or not, there were shadows in the middle of the night. How do you know that? I got to go to the bathroom tonight. I have to look out the window. And you can see all the shadows from the trees in my backyard. The shadows from the lights. It says that God never changes like the shadows from those lights. And what do they mean shadows? Shadows change depending on the what? The height and the brightness of the light, the sun or the moon. It says he is always the same. Next one. With whom there is never the slightest variation or shadow of inconsistency. And then... One of the translators used the same language that was in the actual dictionary, Greek dictionary, Hebrew dictionary. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, using our language, and nothing fickle, that same word. And the last one I'll bring to your attention. He is consistent. He won't change his mind or play tricks in the shadows. Now, I went to Malachi 3.6. Did a little studying the language. But then I said, oh, let's see how those same over 50 versions translate Malachi 3.6. Now get this. Fifth, over 50 different translations of Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And you know what? In all over 50 of them, every single one of them translated, he does, that, that uses the word, I do not change or I never change. There was no other language. It was either I, I, I don't change or I never change. There wasn't a single one in the over 50 that I looked at that used any different phraseology. So what's the conclusion? That God, by His Spirit, sent a message through two different men in two different times in history that were under the inspiration of His Spirit speaking on His behalf that said, God does not change. That's very hard for us as humans to get our head around or to accept or to believe. You know why? Because I change all the time and you change all the time. All the things that we said God doesn't do, the fickleness, the changeability, changing thoughts, changing affections as humans, we're not very good at that unchangeability. In fact, we actually malign people who don't change. They're stuck in the mud, or they, you know, whatever. All right? How about going on now? How about another scripture? Numbers chapter 23, going way back, early. I think this is probably written by, I believe, correct me, other people, probably written by, by Moses, right? Because it's in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which Moses predominantly wrote. So we're going back, really, to the earliest scriptures written. And he says this, God is not human. Remember that. God is not a human being that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Let's take a little closer look at this idea that God doesn't change his mind. In that idea, as I look through that idea of the language that's used there, in the Hebrew language, the idea that God doesn't change his mind, the word repent came up. That must be the root in the Hebrew word is, is translated in other places the word repentance or repent. And this is simply saying that God does not need to repent like we as humans do. 
Repentance is what? Is having great remorse and recognizing where you've made errors and, and, and have disobeyed what God has said and you've made mistakes and having great remorse to actually come to him and ask for forgiveness for that and then to change your ways. The Bible says that God does not need to repent. The other thing is God does not need to show remorse. You know why? Because he was never wrong and he was never an error and he doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't sin so there's no need for him to repent or to have remorse unlike you and I who do fall short and we need to repent and we need to have remorse but God's not that way. Now, here's another thing that happens though. I want to clarify this because some of you um, one of two things will ha have already happened or will happen. You have probably, if you've read your Bible over and over again, the fact that I say God never changes his mind, you're immediately going, wait a minute, I know a few examples of the Bible where God did change his mind. Okay? Listen to the things that I came across as I was studying Numbers 23.19 coming from the Hebrew scholars trying to give us an accurate representation of what that means. They say this, and this is a quote, the Bible at times metaphorically, you know what a metaphor is from your high school English class where you give attributes to something or someone or whatever that it really doesn't have in a way to help a person understand that better. Have I done okay English people? Is that accurate? Giving something attributes that it really doesn't have in a way to try to help us to understand what that thing is really like. The Bible itself at times metaphorically attributes human features and human emotions to God. It does that in an effort to help us to understand God, but it does not mean that he actually has those features or emotions. The Bible actually, and God in his graciousness, is trying to give us something that we do understand, our own emotions and our own attributes, physical things, and trying to use them in a, in a way that it might lead us to a little better understanding of God, but that does not mean that God has those same qualities. There are times where it appears that God has changed his course of action, or it seems so from our human perspective, and you look at the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple of them. There was a time in the Old Testament where the children of Israel had consistently disobeyed and done the very things that God told them not to do. He told them, don't do this. If you do, I will cast judgment on you, but if you'll follow my ways, I will I will bless you your whole life. But they consistently, over and over and over again, disobeyed. And it got to a spot one time when Moses was the leader that God told Moses, I'm done. I am done with these people. They're stiff-necked. They're hard-hearted. They're doing the things they're not supposed to do. I am going to wipe them from the face of the earth and I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses. Because Moses was faithful. Moses prayed. He begged God, don't that. And he has some explanations of why. And then God relented and didn't do it. So, I want to say this. From our human perspective, which is the only one that we have, it appears from our human perspective that God changed his mind. There was a second one. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. If you haven't read that story, it's a quick read. You can go to the book of Jonah. You can read the whole thing. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And tell them, I have seen their wickedness, and in not too many days from now, I am going to utterly destroy them from the face of the earth. Jonah runs the other way, it takes quite a while before he's obedient to God, and he finally goes, and he gives the message to the Ninevites, God is not pleased with you because of your sinful state, and he's going to wipe you out. 
what ends up happening is the Ninevites hear and they have remorse and they repent and they change. And then God has compassion for them and he didn't bring that destruction upon them. It can look, again, from our human perspective that God changed his mind. But remember, this is a metaphor. It's not saying that God even has a mind to change. That's a debatable thing. We have minds, but God's not me. I'm made in his image. There's some of the things in me and in you that are like him, but that doesn't mean that he's exactly like us. Now, you say, Pastor, you're getting kind of confusing here. You're like dancing around something or trying to do that. I'm telling, all I'm telling you is what people who have given much more time and effort and much more life are explaining these situations, saying from our human perspective, it looks like God changed his mind. But, this now a quote, a quote. This does not mean that the exercise of God's sovereign will is contingent upon man's behavior. Let me say that again. What we read in those examples does not mean that the exercise of God's sovereign will, what he said he was going to do or what he was planning to do, is contingent upon men's behavior. The Lord is not, again, interesting, I see this all over in my reading. This is a direct quote from a, a Hebrew scholar. The Lord is not whimsical and he's not fickle. Sorry. God is consistent. He is morally bound not to change his stance if man continues to travel on an evil path. If man continues on his evil path, he is morally bound not to change what his plan is in that. Yet, if man turns from his wicked ways, which we see at times in the scriptures and in our own lives, when he turns from his wicked ways, God in his graciousness exercises mercy and withholding judgment. That's the message of scripture. Though it may appear to men, and I, I've got this bold-faced here, though it may appear to men, me and you, that God's purposes have changed, according to God's perspective, nothing has changed. I want to challenge you in a big way this morning. Don't you dare put your humanity and your human thinking on God as if he operates the way you do. Because that is a great disservice to him. He is not that way at all. He is desperately trying to help us to understand it to a certain extent. But you know what? That's why our faith will become sight. And the moment that we cross from this life and the next and our humanity is finally drawn away, our sinful nature is drawn away, we will see God for who He truly is. And these things will make sense. Not make sense to our human fallen mind, but we will see it as it always has been in the reality. Because our fallen nature and the imperfectionist will be stripped away. So there are going to be things for the rest of your life as you walk this earth, no matter how much you study your Bible, no matter how much you seek to understand God and pray for understanding, there are going to be things that are very hard to wrap your head around about God and His nature because of what it looks like from your human perspective. But don't rely on your human perspective. The key thing in this message this morning is that God doesn't change. He does not change. Scripture says he's the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. It's a thread I've already shown you that starts in the earliest writings by Moses and goes all the way through to James, which is the end, towards the end. And it's all over in between. There are 
things that are going to challenge you, like I gave you a couple of examples where it appears from my perspective and your perspective and our sheer humanity that he did change his mind. But the scholars are saying that's not really what was going on there. From God's perspective, nothing changed. And I realize that doesn't make sense. Well, welcome to being submissive to the Lord God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth. There are going to be things that don't make sense because we're trying to judge that humanly speaking. The second thing that was listed in there that God doesn't lie in that numbers passage. That means God never speaks falsehood. He doesn't deceive. He's never proven to be untrue in his words or his actions. As much as people throughout history have tried to prove God wrong, prove what God says is wrong, prove the Bible wrong, it's interesting there are people that stand on that and argue that right and left, but there are many people that set out to try to prove God wrong and it's long and you know what ended up happening? They got saved. Because they, as they immerse themselves in Scripture, what they thought they would find is not what they found. There's some great books written by people who set forth with that plan and ended up converted. Now, instead of me trying to convince you any further, which really doesn't have much value other than the fact that I'm declaring clearly to you, you know what, I believe what the Bible has to say, that God doesn't change. I believe it with all my heart. I base my life on it. I stand before you week after week teaching out of the Word of God because I believe not only does God not change, but His truth doesn't change. I believe firmly in absolute truth. I believe firmly in absolute moral truth. Alright? Now, instead of me using any more explanations or what I have to say about it, or even what other scholars have to say, what I'm going to do now is give you six verses scattered throughout Scripture, Old New Testament, Psalms, some prophets, and actually some words of Jesus that actually speak to this. First one is in Isaiah chapter 40, prophet. The grass withers, the flower fails. Paints a picture right there. Glass, grass withers, the flowers fail or fall. But the word of our God endures forever. Flowers and grass do what? They fade and change seasonally. They're affected by drought. But the word of God endures forever. Next one. In Psalm. In Psalms. In the beginning, speaking of God, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. That's basically everything you can see. You laid the foundations of the earth that we live on. You can look up in the heavens at night on a clear night. It's the work of your hands. They will perish. Makes a declaration. All that stuff will go away. They will perish. But you, God, remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. And it's actually, a, 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 some actually a prophecy and a foretelling of what's going to happen. But, in the midst of all that, you, God, remain the same and your years will never end. Another psalm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Psalm 119. Your word, Lord, is eternal. What does that mean? Never ends. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day 
for all things serve you. And now we'll do some New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now the interesting thing about that idea of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the same yesterday, eternally, today, right now, and forever, eternally, in the future. The other thing about that is Jesus came to earth as God to show what God is like. He is God. So it's that idea that you can translate to the God. But then the other thing is in John, he says what? He's the Word. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. All these things through Scripture. So that Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And I love the thing that's tacked on the end of that in the Hebrews writer. There's something about that statement that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And get this. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. There's a warning in that. That as time progresses, strange teachings will come, which will challenge that, challenge us, challenge our walk with the Lord, challenge our faith. But he's simply saying, remember this. No matter what strange teaching comes, Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, you don't need to be carried away by strange doctrines and strange teachings. You can sink your, you can sink your feet strongly on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his teachings and biblical truth that will carry you through. And then, the words of Jesus himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's saying the same thing that the psalmist and other people are talking about. You know, there's a day coming when the earth and the heavens as we know it will pass away, and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. But he's simply saying this, but my words, the truth of God, never will pass away. It's eternal. There's something about God's truth. Another thing that we can't understand and grasp as human beings and His truth is this because mankind, we have a lot of wisdom and truth and actually we discover things. And when you state that and you actually prove it for the first time, it becomes this new body of information. Do you realize that the truth of God does not, the truth that we find in the Bible does not have a beginning and does not have an end? Because its source is in God Himself. It's His wisdom, it's His knowledge, it's His truth that was there when He created the earth. And God is an eternal being and will live forever on both ends of the spectrum. And so that truth itself is something that didn't start just because humans came on the scene. His, the source of that truth is something that's been there either, that predates even human beings. Because it's part of God himself. Now a few conclusions for you. God doesn't change. God's truth doesn't change. God's plan doesn't change. And I say that as clearly and as directly as I know how, and I want to encourage you, we can trust those things. We can trust all of that. And what does trust look like? We can stand on those three things. We can build our life on those three things. We can use those three things as a basis to make all of our life decisions and all of our life choices on. And I want to put this out there. Until you and I accept God's unchangeability and that His truth is unchangeable, until we really yield to that, submit to that, believe that, 
choose to walk in that, we are susceptible to all the winds and the shifting sands of our culture. Just because we come to Christ and make Him Lord and Savior and start to work, work in obedience as much as we can, until we really, at a heart level, say, God, I don't fully understand all of that, but you are unchangeable, your truth never changes, until we have that and as, a, as, a, as, a, as a solid mooring and base in our life, we are susceptible, even as Christians, to all the changing and the shifting sands and the things that come culturally. In Hebrews 6, it's written again, another thing in Hebrews, because, listen, because, giving you the reason why, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purposes very clear to the heirs of what was promised. It's interesting, there's something there saying, he wants us to know that and to believe that, that his plans don't change. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, that we who have, have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, which is a song we sing. A lot of you music people just mean, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. What is this hope that we're speaking of? The unchangeable nature of God, the unchangeable nature of truth is meant to be an anchor. What are anchors for? They keep the boat where it's supposed to be. Or anchors on a building. If you live in a trailer, if it was installed correctly, there are pins in the foundation, and then there's cable ties that go from the concrete in that pin, tie to that, and tie to that. Why? Because a trailer could be blown off its morning, moorings, even in the north country, in a stiff wind. And it has things that firmly tie it down to what? A firm foundation. God's unchangeability, the unchanging nature of his truth, is meant to be an anchor so that we are unmoved in the storms of life. Now, get this. If you've ever been, and I have not been, I have been in a spot where I kind of wish my anchor would have worked, but it didn't. I was on a black lake in a storm, and my motor quit. And we started to wander down, and thank goodness I've got a brave son who just thought, it's okay, Daddy jumped over the side, we were close to the shore, and dragged the boat back to shore. I'm like, wow, go get him. It was after we had a failed attempt, the boat came in and tried to drag us back, and as he started to take on water, he just cut us loose and drove away. Isn't that nice? And there was a thunderstorm coming. It was not fun. And needless to say, I think I brought that. I never used the boat again after that. I took it home and sold it. <laughs> Me being a brave person. But you know, thing: storms. Storms come. We can be anchored to a foundation, but we're still going to get wet, and our hair is going to get messed up, but it doesn't move us. Remember that. God never promised it was going to be easy. He never promised we are going to be immune to the storms of life. But he did say, if you will firmly sink your teeth and, and sink your faith and your trust in my unchanging nature, it will be strong enough to handle whatever the culture comes, whatever the strange doctrines and teachings that come along. God wants you and I to have a firm hope for the future that's not dependent upon what goes on around us. But you will not get there I will not get there if we don't believe and submit to the fact that God is unchanging and His truth never changes. He wants us to be secure. He wants us to have hope. And that hope is found in giving ourselves to His absolute truth. And we'll be secure 
when we build our lives on that truth. When that becomes the guiding force and dictates what we do and don't do, his unchanging truth. Now, in actuality, the message I've just preached to you is all in preparation for next week. Changing gears. This is, that is all in preparation for next week. A few weeks ago, for actually months now, what do you, you say? Yes. For a few months now, I have felt in my heart, I've shared it with the elders, I think you shared it at one of our board meetings, that it's, it's important to address a cultural issue. And you know, if you've been in our church here for any length of time, I'm not a person that gets up and talks a lot specifically about a, an issue. The scripture talks about it. I'll, I'll, I'll preach through the Bible, preach through scripture, and when we come across one of those issues, I'll address it then. This is one of those things that we've been talking for quite a while, the importance of what we believe. The importance of what God has to say about issues. And basing our, our choices, our decisions, our lives, and the importance in the day that we live in to really be based and founded in what God has to say and be sure of what we believe in. Well, one arena where we see this unchang the, 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 the unchangeable nature of God and His truth in a culture that shifted a long ways away from where it would have been years ago and calling it progressive and labeling it good is in the area of human sexuality. Okay? When it comes to our sexuality, it is so important, so important, that we have an anchor in the unchanging nature of God and His unchanging truth. We desperately need absolute truth, absolute moral truth, if we are ever going to navigate effectively as human beings the whole area of sexuality. We need God's truth as found in the Bible to illuminate our thinking and our reasoning when it comes to human sexuality. So next week, my plan is to address the issue in our culture today of human sexuality from a biblical viewpoint. Now, so you say, why did you spend all this time? I could have come at that issue today, but I hope that you heard what I said before I said this last little bit at the end. God doesn't change. God's truth doesn't change. And that's the basis that I will come before you next week. We will open up the scripture together and we will look at what God says in his word about those issues. And we'll let that speak with the backdrop of today's message that he doesn't change and his truth doesn't change. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are. We, I personally thank you that you are unchanging, that your, your truth doesn't change. Lord, in the world that I live in, and Jesus, you understand that, the world that you came to, you recognize how vastly it shifts and it moves at the whims of humans and our sinful nature, Lord, and how desperately we need an anchor for our hope that goes beyond just Jesus Christ, but the truth and who God is in his unchanging nature, that we need to be we need to we need to cling to that. We need to be we need to be attached to that in a powerful way. And we thank you that you don't change, that you are solid and sound, that you're the same God today that you were the day you created the heavens and the earth. You're the same God today that you were before the heavens and earth were created, and you're the same God in the future 
that we've experienced then and now. And Lord, we thank you that you have in your wisdom given us truth that stands the test of time if we'll let it. And Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds, not to be progressive, but enlighten our hearts and minds to see your truth as it really is in critical areas that our culture is dealing with. And that we would choose, that we would choose to stick to the unchanging nature of who you are, the unchanging nature of your truth, and apply that in our lives and test the results in that, rather than yielding to the, the things that, that human wisdom and reasoning has consistently tried to pour out. We thank you for your consistency, your faithfulness. Thank you that you reveal things to us. Thank you that you send the Holy Spirit to illuminate and help us to understand. And I ask of you in advance, in anticipation, help me as I prep this week, Lord. Lead us to the right places. Open our hearts and minds even now. We, we invite your Spirit in a powerful way through this week and the next week in, 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 as we gather again. Send your Spirit to do the work that you sent it to do, which is to lead us into all understanding of what you said. And Lord, I pray that you would humble us, humble us enough to lay aside our own opinions and our own thoughts, our culture's thoughts and our culture's opinions, to look at the pure things that you say and to put our trust there rather than all the noise around us. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that when we do that, not just in the area of sexuality, but when we do that in all areas of our life, we are firm, we are sound, we are secure, and we can have a hope of the future that we will not be moved because we're attached to you in the best possible way. Lord, I pray that would be our heritage, that we would choose to walk in that, and we would be disciplined to walk in that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, uh, one thing I want to say, just as a matter of closing, um, 